This 10 Talks podcast is a production of the 10 Words Project from WUOT-FM and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. Hello and welcome to Bedtime Stories, the first season of the 10 Talks podcast. If you've tuned in before, you know that 10 Talks is a product of WUOT's 10 Words Project. And 10 Words is our way of getting to know our listeners and which we ask you about what you find important. Your responses to our current question, what keeps you up at night, have inspired all 10 of our Bedtime Stories episodes in this season of 10 Talks. Of our now more than 500 responses, 30 of you wrote about your concerns for what the world we're leaving to our children and grandchildren might look like. Some of you just wrote the environment in general or mentioned specific environmental policies. Some of you talked about climate change and clean energy and clean air, and three of you expressed your concern for our most industrious pollinators, the honeybees. So tonight we're going to talk about carrying the world on your shoulders, because after all, we only have one world. And later on, we're going to be joined by Jim Stovall, a local beekeeper, to talk about honeybee population endangerment. But we're going to kick it off with our first guest, Tom Reddick, a senior technical executive from the Electric Power Research Institute to talk to us about clean energy. Hey, Brittany, <laughs> pleased to be here today to uh, share some thoughts with you. Awesome. So uh, we've seen with the announcement of President Obama's and the EPA of um, the clean energy plan that is putting federal emphasis on new energy alternatives and cutting carbon emissions. Even here in Tennessee, we're one of the nation's leaders in creating clean energy jobs. We currently employ about 45,000 workers in the clean energy industry. So why is eliminating carbon-creating fuels so important right now? The introduction of fossil fuels has been our principal source of uh, CO2 emissions. And with growing uh, focus and emphasis on climate change, carbon emissions are closely correlated uh, in many people's minds with uh, how that climate change is at least coming about. So our focus is to reduce emissions in total. And one part of that emission source, certainly, is the production of electricity. So our, our goals are to look at what options like renewable energy technologies that can reduce those CO2 emissions uh, in the, uh, to, that are going to the air. So incorporating electricity then could, could cut down on like a greenhouse effect? Fossil fuels in general, which represent uh, a large part of the electricity uh, production mix today, uh, are sources of CO2. And so as we move towards alternate technologies, we will reduce those, those emissions. Uh, our plan perhaps gets a little complicated because we have a, a scenario today that's uh, based upon uh, a collection of fuel choices that, that have been made over time. And what we're trying to understand is that how do we transition ourselves from the uh, uh, the, the, the mix of fuels that we have today to a cleaner supply. So in that process, uh, what we're trying to do is learn how to use all fuels, and especially those fuels like renewable, that, that have the lower CO2 uh, composition. And one of our requirements in this process of making this transition is to 
maintaining a reliable electric supply. So you mentioned the fuels that we've been using over time that we're now trying to kind of um, integrate with other new fuels. So we are talking about oil, we're talking about coal. What else are we talking about that we're kind of trying to phase out? So when we look at uh, over time, at one point, it is good that you raised the, the question around oil. At one time, oil was a primary uh, fuel choice in producing electricity. And beginning in the early 70s, we moved very rapidly away from uh, the use of oil simply because of its price and its shortage in the world. And it was during this period that we really increased the use of coal. And uh, so coal has been one of those key items in the, in, the, uh, in the fuel mix. It was plentiful, and it was priced right at the, at the time period. And we did not have such a concern or focus on, on those emissions that may be coming from coal. Natural gas has always been also a small part of the, uh, of the choice fuels. And certainly, starting in the 60s, we did do a major expansion of the use of nuclear power as well. So our current less sustainable energy alternatives, like what is the difference between our, our reserves of those and, and fuel resources? When we look at the, uh, the availability of, of fuels, today we have certainly a, quite an ample supply of, of coal accepting the premise that coal is a large CO2 emitter, what we started doing is looking at other choices that we may make. And this is where the, the availability of supply and the price of what you may pay for these alternative fuels becomes very much in the focus. So what we've begun to do is to make a significant transition towards natural gas. What's important about natural gas is that uh, a typical gas facility at the point of combustion produces about half the CO2 emissions of, of coal, and we have natural gas very plentiful with our, our uh, recent discoveries, and the price is really quite, uh, quite competitive. Phase out, because we know, you know there's not an unlimited supply. I've, I've read that there's two, two things that people look at then is like our amount of reserves and our amount of resources. Do you know anything about that? Well, um, as to what the difference between the two is. When I think of reserves, what I think about is how much uh, resource will be available to me over an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And in the near term, when we look at something like gas, there are substantial gas reserves. So we have a lot of ability to transition from our very plentiful supply of, uh, of coal to a very plentiful supply of, of uh, natural gas. Number two is that nuclear, we obviously have a, uh, an extremely large set of reserves around the use of nuclear. However, what we've been focused on so much of recent is that we look at sun power, for example, and we have an enormous reserve built up in this type of, I'll use the word fuel here because I think that's a good way of, a, of describing it. And using sun power to produce electricity does create some other types of issues, mainly because it's not a constant supply. We know that when the sun sets each day, if we're using solar as our generating source, we will lose it. We also know that, that when clouds and, and the general atmosphere changes, 
we have issues with intermittency, availability of the supply. So what we have to do is learn how do we take a resource of this type and integrate it in with our other alternatives as we transition into this cleaner fuel arrangement. So given the, this, this mix kind of, of like solar power and wind power and different renewable energy resources doesn't have that 24-hour availability and we have to manage it, how are you going to fill those gaps as we try to transition into more, more renewable energy across the grid? Uh, good question. Our plan is, uh, in principle, simple, but somewhat more difficult to execute. So uh, what, we're, what we're looking at is the deployment of effective storage technologies. The use of storage in the electric system is not a new idea. Certainly, uh, historically, what we've done is that we've used water storage. These would be plants where what you do is that you actually pump water up uh, in a, a reservoir and then during alternative periods, you, you discharge that water. These are large storage devices. In fact, the Tennessee Valley has a major pump storage facility that they have run in, in uh, combination with their nuclear power plants. And the objective there was to take periods when there was a lot of supply available, save it up and use it in periods when there was less supply available. So that principle is, is uh, uh, a well-established principle, if you wish. So water storage then is, is fairly easy to manage. Water storage is, is, is easy because what it does is that it uses conventional electric generating equipment. So the point being is that you can store it in a reservoir and when you drain it, it operates in respects just like a typical hydroelectric plant, which we have a vast amount of uh, experience. However, uh, two things I should point out about that is that, uh, first of all, is that uh, um, when you flood large areas and use a lot of land, then, then there are others that question that style of land use that, that comes with, uh, with that. And the second thing is that those pump storage facilities are designed to operate with large central station power plants. And a lot of the solar that we're considering going forward is distributed solar devices. So what we're really looking for are storage technologies like batteries that can be uh, combined with uh, solar in what I'll call smaller units so that what we have is a nice package of kind of sizing the, the size of the storage facility with that of the producing uh, source. Yeah, because I know in um, California right now, there's been a lot of times plants, especially solar plants, will generate more energy than they need, and then they have to shut down the plant for a certain amount of time because they don't have a way to continue to store that energy. So it's just, it's like wasting solar energy. Is it that difficult to find ways to reserve solar and wind energy? One of the uh, key issues that we are addressing is that with any of the... Uh, I'll call them free production sources. So when the wind blows, we're anxious to capture the energy that's in the wind. And when the sun shines, we're, at, we're, we're equally excited about grabbing that production. And what's happening is that we're producing power in a time period and potentially in excess 
of when consumers are looking to uh, actually consume electricity. Mm -hmm. So what we have is this potential, this inherent mismatch. Historically, what we simply did was that we turned the power plants back so that the power plants would follow consumer demands for electricity. What we suddenly now have is that we, we still have these power plants, but we have two issues that we have to, to grapple with, so to speak. And that combination of issues, A, as consumer power consumption interests vary, we have to manage that. And now we suddenly also have to manage power production variation. So now we have two things that we have to change our more conventional plants output and get a, a collected balance between these variables. So what we have is a more complicated situation and many of the conventional power plants were not designed to, to have this large of excursions, if you wish, in terms of, uh, of how much they produce or how much you cut them back or how quickly you cut them back or how quickly you may have to put them back online because if you suddenly are accounting very heavily on solar and the, and the cloud comes in and you lose that solar production very quickly, then you have to add your conventional fuels back into the mix. You're doing this delicate balance in order to keep electricity quite reliable, and we also want to keep it as low a cost as is, as is practical. So then if we can't store solar and wind energy that well right now, and we're trying to kind of get them working together with other conventional fuels, why can't we just shut down some conventional plants when we have excess solar, excess wind energy, and use that? Are there some that just have to stay open, or do this, does it just not work that way? Or You're really asking the correct question there. Most of this has to do with the design of the power plant itself. So uh, remember, these are large central station plants. Uh, their physical size is uh, uh, sometimes daunting. You, if you walk into one of these plants, you, you begin to, to, to realize the enormous size. And so these power plants typically are burning of fuel that makes steam and that steam then runs a generator. So what we have is in that steam production process, we have a lot of uh, high temperatures, we have a lot of pressures, and you, with these large resources like this, you cannot just arbitrarily move these things up and down. They have warm-up periods, they have coast-down periods. It's all the features that make up a rather complex uh, uh, large station power plant. And the way that we were the way we've been designed classically is that uh, needing to move these plants from one state to another very quickly simply uh, was not a requirement. So we do have major design issues that we have to work around. So our, one of our key goals at, at the Electric Power Research Institute is to understand how to achieve this balance between the characteristics and properties of the new resources and combine those with the classic resources in such a manner that we can put together a configuration that minimizes impact on the environment, but yet still does make good dollars and cents. And I know in high school, you know, we learn about the law of conservation only be transferred. So when you look at um, alternative 
resources, you have to look at how much energy does it cost to, to create this, and also does it also have enough energy to then replace um, the conventional fuel source? Is that another issue we've been running into, or does sustainable energy from like solar and wind power kind of just make up for that huge amount itself? There, there's a real important concept that we should get people to think about, and that is that clearly we can produce a lot of electricity with solar energy or with wind energy. Our difficult problem that we have to solve is timing of supply. So in other words, what we cannot do is that we just cannot unilaterally produce, you know, infinite amounts of, or I shouldn't say infinite, so let's say large amounts of, uh, of power. What we have to do is produce power in a way that we can balance that with consumption needs. Now the, the corollary or the footnote to that is the fact this is how storage comes into play because what storage helps you do is uh, balance out when you're going to consume with when you produce. And I, let me give you a little example. Most people really understand this quite well. In our homes, we have water heaters. And what the beauty of a water heater does, it really uses the principle of storage because what we do is that we make hot water in one period and we save it and then we use it as we need it. So what we do is that we kind of disconnect when we make the hot water from when we use it. That's what we're ultimately trying to do with our future electric system. We're trying to get that balance. We're trying to get that balance between how do I use these new, exciting, uh, environmental friendly assets, but yet meet the needs of consumers and keep that whole process reliable. At that point, would the grid ever be able to move completely to clean renewable energy or is it always gonna be an integration of different parts? I think that we're most likely to have in the future, uh, let's say a lot more balance between fuel choices. A hundred years from now, if we reach out that far, a uh, hundred years from now, I think we will have uh, a situation that will be far more rich in uh, minimal polluting type resources. There's little doubt in my mind that renewable energy will be a major component. Whether it will be the exclusive component, um, I think that's a really a to be determined. Um, in order to make it uh, an exclusive supply, clearly we would have to do something with the storage uh, issue. We, we, because we do need a balancing agent to keep this uh, uh, with us. And, um, and one of the complications is that let's think also in this balance that we're trying to achieve. Are we trying to balance it over a day, the diurnal cycle? Are we trying to balance it in a week? Are we trying to balance it over the course of the year? The balancing period is extremely important because that really taxes how we do it. And it makes the storage device more complicated. And if it gets more complicated, then it means it's more expensive. So one of the reasons in the future that we're likely to have still a mix of fuels, time has shown us that when we have a mix of fuels, we usually end up with the best economic solution as well. 
It sounds like there's kind of a mix of fuels, and then is there also like a mix of the way those are distributed? That's what we're looking at, uh, again, at the Institute. We have a term that we use to describe this is called the integrated grid. And the integrated grid is about understanding how we take distributed assets and make those effective in the process of, uh, of producing and consuming electricity in a, in, a, in a very reliable way. So today we have a system that has grown over the last 100 years. This is a, this is a very interesting time frame. It's grown uh, over 100 years because if you go back 100 years, it was a very interesting scenario we had. We had all distributed assets. And what we did over the last 100 years is that we aggregated those distributed assets into large central station plants. And we did it for a couple of reasons. First of all, for economics. And secondly, for being able to build a dependable supply around that. So now what's happened is that we have a lot of new constraints. Part of those solutions was a byproduct of significant CO2 emissions. So now we're really asking ourselves the question, oh, if what we want to do is to keep our emissions to a minimum, perhaps what we should do is re-examine with the advance in how solar and other renewables can be used about how we mix that. So we're transitioning perhaps again from large central stations now towards distributed assets. So a lot of people, I think, when they think of um, kind of phasing towards this, this clean energy and even a clean energy plan, we immediately start thinking of coal plants getting shut down. We see it happen all over the country. Coal plants that aren't complying with CO2 emission standards are just uh, getting phased out because is, is there a way that they can change the way in which they operate to then um, lower their emissions and stay within standards and be part of that integration, or are we going to see coal energy just disappear? We certainly are seeing a decrease in the use of coal energy. Uh, here's a very interesting statistic that will, uh, it, it kind of puts it in a, in a quite an interesting picture. In the last half dozen years or so, we have shut down 265 coal generating units. And that loss of production is about 80% of the energy production that TVA does on an annual basis, so uh, we've had a we've had a huge reduction in that in those sources, and out over the next five years, out to 2020, there will be uh, another uh, approximately 60 gigawatts of reduced coal production, and by the way, 60 gigawatts is almost, it's approaching twice the size of TVA. So if you think about that in a period of, of, a, of a decade to 12 years, we will have removed from electricity production the equivalent of at least, well, probably of about two and a half times TVA. And TVA produces of the, of the order of a 4% of the energy in the nation annually. This is a huge, huge transition. And a lot of that has been displaced today with natural gas. With natural gas being our transition transition fuel because of its, obviously it's lower CO2 emissions. And uh, uh, these are some of the transition steps. Uh, we are always examining how can we take coal 
and use it in a cleaner way. And there are certainly processes at the Institute that we've looked at that does reduce those emissions, but it also increases the cost of using it. So we're always working this balance. Every time we look at these fuel mixes, we're constantly trading off, how do we get a reliable system? Uh, what are the costs is it gonna be to achieve that reliability? And all of these fuels compete. They all compete for the place ultimately uh, economically, but yet meeting the environmental requirements. Yeah, are there cheap renewable resource alternatives or are they all pretty pricey? Today, uh, today the price of renewable options are, are pricey. So it's we, higher than using some of the more harmful um, or some of the more CO2 emission high yes, fuel sources. Yes, I mean, the, uh, now one of the things about it the U.S. Department of Energy has some very, very aggressive activities under their SunShot initiative. And the SunShot initiative is all about lowering the cost of uh, solar technologies. And they are making quite significant strides. We're seeing the reduction in the cost of, of uh, solar panels come down substantially. They set out with some very, very aggressive goals, and they're being very, very successful at meeting those goals. Now, <laughs> uh, as we've reduced the cost of solar panels, we have something we call the balance of system, and that is that solar panels don't just sit out there by themselves in a, on a roof or in an open field. You have to put them on mounting structures. You have to take the electricity production from those and gather that from the panels and and uh, we change it, uh, solar panels produce what we call DC power as opposed to AC power, alternating current, which is what all of our, I should say all, most of our devices today operate on alternating current. So we have to change the, the DC powered electricity into AC. So you have all these balance of systems. And what has happened with this uh, whole effort uh, under SunShot Great strides on the panels. We have a lot of work yet to do in the what I'll call the balance of system. But all of this is translating into lower costs for solar. And what that's doing is beginning to provide a place in the, in the economic balance for solar. And it will only get better. So... Do our coal plants able to then have like hybrid generators, hybrid burners that also use some of these transition fuels like natural gas with coal to then to get then keep themselves in business? I, I think that uh, what you what we will typically see is that a plant will either be coal or gas. It won't be both. Okay. Uh, so so in in many of these uh, now th this is an important thing to think about. A lot of these facilities that are being shut down, which are coal-burning uh, facilities, there's a lot of infrastructure that's present. You, you need an electric delivery system that's connected to the plant to get the production out. You've got a lot of uh, common plant facilities. And what you do is that when you transition one of these from coal to natural gas, you don't lose everything on site. Uh, you're able to use some of that uh, uh, infrastructure. So um, uh, in those transitions, we really look to see how much of that uh, uh, that we can use. There are some options to generate with natural gas that are not 
available to uh, uh, to coal burning facilities. And those options, uh, the technology is called combined cycle. That technology is really exclusive to gas, but it's a more efficient process. So as we transition these these uh, different fuels, um, uh, there are opportunities that we can capture that we might not otherwise do. So what is this about? It's about learning how to do that in a, uh, in a positive way. So our, I mean, that makes me think though of, of employees in coal plants, are they able to learn this, how to you know, transition in a positive way? Or once a coal plant makes the transition to national, natural gas, if they're able to and not just shut down altogether, um, does the staff then have to be replaced? It, it, the, uh, the staff in a power plant, uh, the staff that runs a coal plant, uh, if what we do is that we, if we replace it with a, an equivalent type of uh, natural gas plant, so we're talking about a, a gas plant that, that has a steam cycle with it, like coal does, mm -hmm. then there are certainly there are similarities in jobs. So there is, there is an opportunity for what I'll call job retraining in order to work in those facilities. So those skill sets can be kind of added to their current one. That skill set is a, is a good match. On that job front, we have to think about the other question, and that is that the way we get the fuel supply. Obviously, in the case of coal, we're talking about something that involves mining, and there is, uh, as we cut back on the use of coal, we do create an, a significant issue and loss of jobs around the mining of coal. And that's a different skill set, if you wish, uh, than, let's say, renewable energy jobs uh, that are coming along. And, and it's not like, it's not like a one-to-one -one placement for those people that lose their jobs. It's certainly uh, uh, it's a different kind of job. And in, in, in the total jobs picture, you know, that's encouraging because we do have these new jobs that are coming in. But we then have to look at how diverse that labor supply is that's been in that mining industry. And we will have to address that problem. That, that's all part of our, our total look at the, at the issues. And so looking at, you know, the jobs costs and things like that, in the long term, um, you would say that it, it seems worth it? Well, you know, uh, technology has a way of, of really changing over time. You know, can you imagine we're having this dialogue today? It wasn't too many years ago that, that, the, uh, that the folks that were caring for the, the horses that, that drove the wagon said, what the heck is this gasoline automobile that's coming onto the scene? So things change over time. Certain jobs get created to support where we are in our, our technology solutions. So uh, as uh, painful as this may be for those in the coal industry that may lose their job, uh, I think we recognize this is part of what happens in our progress with technology. There are jobs that, that come in as a direct result of a technology, and as that technology fades, those jobs go away. So we are constantly having to address this issue of, of how do we 
how do we help those people transition out of their current positions into something they could do going forward? It's a very difficult problem to solve. Uh, if you look at us as a nation, I believe that what we have is a, is a commitment to making this a better place to live and certainly a place to, to pass on to the next generation. And history, I think, has shown you must take care of the land and you must take care of the air. So certainly as we go forward, what we need to do is look for uh, solutions to our energy needs that preserve and protect the environment. And without a doubt, uh, one of the things that we uh, are likely to do is, that, uh, is to look at solutions that will reduce the impact of CO2 emissions. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that's clear. We seem to be on that path. I think what we're trying to understand is really how we do that and the way that we achieve that, certainly renewable energy will play a key role in that going forward. So for those of us that are in the, uh, in the electric power business, what we would like to be able to do is understand how do we take the new fuel choices and mix those with the present supplies and take all of that in balance. And in balance, we mean what's good for the environment, but also that we achieve reliable electricity at a, at a fair price. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll be joined by our next guest, Jim Stovall of the Blunt County Beekeepers Association. Welcome back to 10 Talks Bedtime Stories. We're here with Jim Stovall, a local beekeeper and member of the Blount County Beekeepers Association. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about the honeybees. Um, so is it true right now that, that the honeybee population is endangered? Well, there are lots of different answers to that. Um, probably the first answer is that bees uh, in some form, whether they be honeybees or other types of bees. By the way, there are about 20,000 different species of bees or types wow. of bees that we know of. Uh, honeybees are just one type there. But bees have been around for um, several million years. Uh, we expect them to survive. They have survived a lot of things uh, here on Earth, and they're probably going to survive whatever the current conditions are. On the other hand, uh, we recognize that that bees are very important to us, and they're important in, in a lot of different ways. The main thing for us is, as humans is that they pollinate many of the crops that um, grow the food that we eat, and so we want to make sure that uh, our bee population remains strong so that that can continue uh, to happen. Now, again, a couple of things we need to say here. Bees have never failed in pollinating crops. 
uh, for us. They, they, they do a good job with that. There are many other pollinators besides bees. Uh, wasps, uh, my personal favorite because they, their sting is so bad. Um, <laughs> and, um, but uh, there are lots of other there are bumblebees, honeybees, uh, lots of different kinds of bees pollinate crops. Um, we, we tend to focus on the honeybee because uh, it's the only insect uh, that we know of that produces a food that humans will eat, and that's honey. But that's, of course, not their main job. The, uh, their main job in, in terms of human activity and human survival is, is pollinating crops that produce food. Um, so there's a broad picture here that I think we need to keep in mind. Um, and, and yes, we do have a concern about, about declining bee populations. What we're really talking about there is declining colony populations. Honeybees, as opposed to many other insects and most other bees, honeybees have to live in colonies. They, they are very social insects. A honeybee generally doesn't survive alone, and there's no reason for a honeybee to survive alone. They work in colonies, and the number of colonies um, is, has been declining. It's really been a very long-term decline, um, probably since about World War II, uh, particularly in this country. So, so there, there are lots of concerns as to why that is happening, um, why it is so difficult to, to keep bees now. Mm -hmm. um, what, I was reading an article just this week that said, you know, it's not the bees that should concern us, it's the beekeepers that's self-serving. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, there are fewer and fewer beekeepers now because it's so difficult to do it. Um, there are fewer and fewer people earning a living by keeping bees, uh, and it is so difficult to do it. Now, all of this has an impact on us, uh, on our food system, on our environment, um, and so we do need to be concerned about that. What What are some of the causes of, of what we're seeing with the honeybee population, or the bee in general, yeah. bees population decline? One of, to me, the big overall cause is our environment. Uh, we simply do not have an environment that is friendly to bees. We we um, we use and sometimes overuse pesticides. Uh, urbanization uh, takes away a lot of the bees' habitats. There aren't as many uh, wild beehives as there used to be. Um, and so it's, so it's the overall environment. In addition to that, um, sometime in the mid-1980s, the varroa mite was introduced uh, into the United States. And we're not sure exactly how that happened. There, there are some pretty good theories about it. But the varroa mite is the number one pest of, for bees. And uh, a varroa, varroa will get into a hive uh, will essentially destroy the, the egg cells of, of developing bees uh, so that they come out of those cells um, deformed and they're not able to function as bees. Varroa is everywhere. 
there is there is probably not a hive in America that doesn't have varroa uh, to some extent or another. And so, so beekeepers have to constantly think about and battle varroa, um, and bees simply haven't uh, been able to develop a, a resistance to varroa yet, and that's, that's a concern too. Um, so there are lots of different concerns out there about bees. Uh, we don't do things um, as individuals that could help bees a lot. In fact, uh, I, this is, I like to, you know, whenever I talk about bees, I like to kind of shock people and say, I'll tell you what you do every summer, and I do it too, uh, that's the worst thing for bees. And everybody says, oh, what, what, I'll stop, I'll stop. Well, no, you won't, because it's mowing your lawn. Uh, and I mow my lawn, everybody else mows their lawn. Uh, the fact that we want pristine green lawns uh, does the bee no good whatsoever. Uh, bees need flowers, they need plants, they need weeds, what we consider weeds, dandelions. Bees love dandelions, and yet, you know, people make a point to, to pick out the dandelions, you know, go around in their lawn and do that because they want this pristine green um, lawn, and that doesn't do a bee any good whatsoever. So it's, it's not that I'm advocating that we should stop mowing our lawns. It's just that we need to be aware of the things that we do, we may do them quite innocently uh, that don't help the bees. There are things that we could do that would help the bees if we, would, if we would simply do them. Um, the, one of the main things is to plant, plant bee-friendly flowers. Uh, bees need the nectar from flowers in order to make honey. And it's just certain flowers. It's not, it's not every flower in the, in the book. Uh, there, but um, you know, if we did that along roadways, if we did that along, uh, if we did that along the borders of our lawns, that would be uh, a huge help for us in in helping bees uh, survive. Because bees need a source of food that is close by. Um, our whole system of agriculture uh, is not bee friendly anymore. When you, when you drive out into the country, maybe you drive across Kansas or Iowa or someplace like that, and you see thousands of acres that have nothing but corn in them, it doesn't do the bee any good. Bee can't survive in that, in that environment. So bees can't pollinate corn? It's not that they get, they actually get pollen off of corn, but they do, that's a, that's a very limited time that they can do that. And if, and if there are thousands of acres of corn, that means there's nothing else around. And so they can't, they can't survive. That's, that's 50 out of 52 weeks of the year where they don't have anything. And, and the, the best example of that is, is uh, in California, uh, California's number one crop is almonds. Uh, and most of us like almonds, and I certainly do. Uh, but that's, that's California's number one crop. Well, in order to grow almonds f efficiently, thousands of acres are planted in almond trees with nothing else there. Well, bees, honeybees pollinate 100% of almonds. Yeah. And almond trees bloom for two weeks out of the year. 
So what happens? Where do, the, where do the bees come from that pollinate the almond? Well, they come off of a truck. The truck has come from Pennsylvania or it's come from Wisconsin. Bees are trucked out to California for two weeks to pollinate the almond crop. Then they're trucked elsewhere to pollinate other crops. Uh, and then eventually they're trucked back to the East Coast where they survive. And the these crops are solely dependent on bees to pollinate. Many of them are. The almond crop particularly. Now, you know, you, you have to look at that and say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there are things wrong with that. On the other hand, this nation has come to expect, uh, and it's not a bad thing, that we have cheap food. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we grow food very cheaply, and one of the reasons why we grow food cheaply is this monoculture that we've developed. It's, it's cheaper to grow a 1,000 acres of corn than it is to have 10 acres of corn and 10 acres of beans and you know, that sort of thing. But what's happened is that it makes the environment very unfriendly for bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so we really have to, you know, we can't say, well, I'm against all pesticides, I'm against all monoculture, you know, um, those sorts of things. I mean, th- those, are, those are solutions that don't work and they're too easy. Uh, it's a whole system that we have that we're going to have to take a look at. Um, how we use our water is another, it's a big issue in California now, but it's going to be a big issue elsewhere too, and that's going to affect bees. So trucking bees around, then, does that harm them? Do they just not survive the trips very often? Uh, they, not necessarily. I mean, bees are very resilient um, creatures. But on the other hand, several years ago, we heard a lot about something called colony collapse disorder, CCD. Yeah, what is that? Um, well, that's essentially the effect of it is that you wake up one morning and you look in your hive and all the bees are gone. There are, no, there are no dead bees around. They're just gone, you know. Now, so what makes that happen? Well, the answer is we don't know. You know, we, maybe, you know, I've had that. I, I've had, I've seen bees leave a hive, and they just go. They just but I thought leave. they couldn't survive outside of a hive. Oh, yeah. They, but if they go in a colony, then they'll make a new They'll make a new colony. Okay. Or that's what they'll try to do. But, you know, these commercial beekeepers were waking up, you know, and it's, it's their living. They go out and look at their hives, and, you know, maybe they have 250 hives, and 100 of them don't have any bees in them. Well, you know, that's serious business uh, right there. So what's going on? You know, a lot of people say, well, it's because you put your bees on, on these trucks and they go for thousands of miles and, you know, they're, they're tired of doing that and they just want to go, you know. Take my ball uh, and my bat yeah, and I'm going home. And, <laughs> and I don't, I mean, I don't really think that's what's going on. And, and you can't blame commercial beekeepers for this. I mean, they're part of a system of agriculture that helps us feed lots and lots of folks and do it fairly inexpensively so um so it's just it's there are many factors that go into a problem that where bees are the outcropping of of one of those big problems 
So I colony collapse syndrome, though, isn't so much the colony collapsing as the hive because the colony just leaves. Colony just leaves, yeah. Uh, okay. It's usually not dead. You usually don't find dead bees when that occurs. Now, you know, we're, I think we're sort of over colony collapse syndrome. You don't hear as much about it uh, these days as you used to. But, um, but and, and if you look at the history of beekeeping, particularly the history of beekeeping in America, there are times, there are, many, there are many periods where bee populations and numbers of colonies have declined, and sometimes precipitously. And they did back in the 1980s with the in introduction of the Varroa mite. You know, so how do you deal with that? Well, you know, there are a variety of ways of dealing with that. But there's no, you know, people want a solution you know, kind of a single solution. Tell me what to do. Well, you know, it's it's not quite like that. It's let's think about this whole system that we've got here and let's see if we can't do, while we want to produce lots of food, we want to produce it cheaply, we want it to be inexpensive for people to acquire, but how can we do that and yet make it sustainable? Now, is it, you know, do we have to do something else? Uh, do we have to plant more flowers? Do we have to encourage more beekeeping? You know, should the federal government get involved in in supporting beekeepers and and starting colonies and that sort of thing? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, those are those are policy decisions that have to be made at at state and federal levels. But I think. Um, one of the good things that's happened over the last year is that I do think the federal government's attention has been uh, captured by this. Uh, in, in December or January, the White House put out a, uh, a paper on saving our pollinators, and, and it had a lot to do with uh, saving bees. And so we have, we have that we, if we if we have the weight of the federal government behind something, you know that is often helpful. And the federal government, despite you know what anybody's ideology is, it has to be involved in agriculture. It just has to. Uh, there's no way that that we can have agriculture uh, unless the unless our federal government is involved in it. And so. Um, so I think, you know, we are beginning to get the attention of the federal government, the Department of Agriculture, to the problem. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think that may offer some helpful solutions. Improving the genetics of the honeybee itself is a matter of, of intensive research right now. And that holds some possibilities for us too. So, so there's some progress being made along these lines. But, uh, but, you know, I just, frankly, I just, whenever one of the long lawn care companies comes on and says, well, you know, we'll make your lawn pristine, I just cringe at that because that's that's anti-environmental, and I think that's at our the level. The amount that's of what chemicals and everything. The chemicals and just sort of eradicating anything but a blade of grass. And if we do that, then, you know, we don't, we don't give anything to the bees. So you had mentioned um, earlier all the different types of bees, and even the mm -hmm. 
honeybees aren't our only pollinators, but right. do different kinds of bees pollinate different kinds of crops? Yeah, the uh, bees um, um, are, with 20,000 different types of bees, there are many different sizes of bees. Honeybees are a certain size, uh, and so that means the reason they, one of the reasons why they like certain flowers is that because of their size, they can get to the nectar in that flower. Now, some flowers are too small you know, for them to get to, but smaller bees can get there too. And so, um, so it takes, and wasps and, and butterflies and um, uh, all sorts of stinging insects that you don't like to have around, they're all, most of them are, are pollinators of, of some crop or some type uh, of plant. And so, um, so we need to pay attention to the pollination aspect of, of our agriculture. So bees that, the types of crops that bees are able to pollinate then depends on the size of the bee and the size of the plant. Often it does, yes. Okay. Right. Um, so <clears throat> when, when people start vegetable gardens or even a lot of people will do indoor pest control mm -hmm. and the, the pest control person might spray around the outside of the house um, or maybe if you have a vegetable garden, you'll spray for bugs. Are all of these pesticides, do they kill off all insects, or are they safe for bees? Or is, are um, there any that are safe for bees? Again, there, there are many answers to that question because um, bees will only be, well, the traditional spraying insecticide, um, bees will only be susceptible to that if it is sprayed onto a crop that bees are attracted to. Mm -hmm. um, now, a um, couple of issues there is, um, you know, beekeepers for decades have asked neighboring farmers, let us know when you're going to spray and we will close up our hives that day and we won't let our bees fly and you can spray and once you sprayed, you know, generally things are okay you know um, farmers have not been real good about doing that okay. and so we're trying to you know kind of keep that message out there it's just you know let us know a lot of things can be avoided just if you know what's what's going on there's a new kind of insecticide that's come along however and that's uh, neonicotinoids and it's a very difficult name to say, but so we call them neonics. Um, that is an insecticide that actually gets into the plant itself, gets into the seed of the plant, so that when the plant grows, it has the it has some kind of neonicotinoid. So it's genetically it. modified at that point. Um, I don't know if it fits that definition exactly, but. Um, but many, many people are concerned about neonics now and what effect they're going to have because they don't, you don't spray those things. They're there. And a bee can go and get nectar out of a plant and pick that up and take it back to the hive. And poison and the whole hive. Could, possibly. Now, the research on that is, is still kind of in its infancy, although I will have to say that um, in Europe, 
many places in the European Union, they have banned neonics uh, from from their crops. Uh, we are we have been very, the Department of Agriculture, the FDA has been very slow in our country to recognize what some of the potential dangers are, and so that's another. It's another political policy battle that needs to be that needs to be fought. So that you know, there there are some big companies, huge companies that produce neonics, and they're producing neonics. I mean, uh, and so that's that's how they're you know, and they have great influence uh, on the policies of the of the federal and state governments. And so. So, you know, getting federal and state government to recognize that this may be a danger and it may be something that we have to deal with um, is just a, a process that we have to we have to go through. I've noticed a lot of um, I, I garden at my home, and I've noticed that a lot of uh, the more organic and more like non-chemical pest control agents, like neem oil and oil-based ones like that, that you spray on your plants, um, they never list what insects that they can affect, but I've read that because they're oil-based, they can have really bad effects on honeybees. And I, I also noticed that like, I, ha I was able to get rid of caterpillars and a lot of bugs that were coming in and eating my own vegetables, but then when the flowers started blooming, they would just die without creating like peppers and tomatoes and things because right. I couldn't get bees to come around. Right, right. They wouldn't. They weren't pollinated. Um, I, I'm not sure in in your particular instance what's what's going on uh, there. Uh, I know in my own garden, you know, there are lots of bees. They're all over the. They're big, and I have hives close by, obviously. So, so they're all over the the pumpkins and the corn when the when the pollen is there and the sunflowers and and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's not that we shouldn't grow anything that's not bee friendly, and it's certainly not that we shouldn't use pesticides. Because I'm not would not advocate we wouldn't have the crops that we do if, yeah. we, if we didn't use pesticides, and and that's obvious. What we need to just be aware of is is actually just what you said. What is the effect on these? What are we? What have we seen? What have we observed? You know, how can we modify behavior some so that you know things are better for the bees? Yeah, I think next year, um, as soon as I start seeing the flowers, I'm going to stop yeah. with the with the spray until I start seeing buds for vegetables, right. and then I'll spray again. Yeah. But it, it was it was just. It was my first year doing this, and it was a little bit wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so say someone who's not into gardening and doesn't like bees might have someone allergic to them in the house, and they see either a swarm of bees or um, I've read about bee migrations and things somewhere outside in their garden or in their house. Yeah. Uh, not in their house. Hopefully not in their house. <laughs> outside the house. Um what what should they do? They shouldn't call Nothing. an exterminator. Nothing. No, 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 please don't. Or do a beekeeper, uh, or what if, could you do? If bees are in your house, if they've gotten into the rafters or in between the walls, or that's call a beekeeper, uh, or call the local beekeeper association, or call the uh, local extension service because there are beekeepers 
who specialize in coming into your house and extracting those bees. Yeah. Uh, it may be costly, but you know that's but it'll that's save that population. Should, yeah, that's what you should do. Ultimately, that's that's what you should do. Um, bees flying around are probably not going to bother you. Uh, a lot of people attribute stings to bees when they're actually something else, um, uh, because bees are not bees are not out to sting people. Uh, they're out to find food, and um, that's what they do. So unless a bee is threatened or, or you know, somehow gets defensive, it's probably not going to, to, uh, to sting. A swarm of bees, if you see, it's really fantastic if you see this and you ought to look at it really closely, but if you see a swarm of bees, like in a tree or something like that, it's just a mass of, of bees and they seem to be just hanging there. Um, they are the least likely to, to sting at that point. What those bees are doing is looking for a new home. They have left somebody's hive and they are looking for a new home. And eventually, within 24 hours, they'll be gone. They will find some place to go. Call around and be like, yeah. did you lose some bees recently? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, if you see a swarm of bees and you know a beekeeper, um, call that person because there's nothing that the beekeeper likes better than to find a swarm of bees because often if they those bees are if those bees are accessible then they're very easy to put into a box and you can put them into a hive and and they're they're a good colony of bees just a regular cardboard box or uh, that's what often uh, beekeepers use initially. Uh, it depends on where the, the swarm is. But what happens is that, that in the middle of that swarm is a queen. Um, and so what you have to do is get the, get the bulk of the bees into that box or whatever you're using. If the queen's in there, the rest of the bees will go in there. And you can close it up and take them home if you want to. I mean, they, but they are not out to sting you. Uh, it looks it looks kind of terrifying, but it's it's actually a magnificent sight uh, because what's happening is that bees are are leaving that swarm and scouting for places for that colony to go. They're looking for some kind of cavity, usually a hollow tree or something like that, where they can go and have some protection and build a new colony there. Uh, now the beekeeper will cut that process short by putting them in a box and then taking them home and putting them in, in regular beehive uh, boxes and, and giving them a home to live in. So. Uh, so that's that's not a bad thing at all, and beekeepers love it. Um, so if you if you see a swarm, call me or call somebody. Uh, but uh, but bees are not insects that that people generally have to worry about. I mean, it's just very rare that uh, a bee will will actually sting you, you know, and you're not doing anything to it. So um, so that's not that's not really the concern. Do bees really die after they sting a person? Yeah, they do. What happens is that they have a stinger uh, in their abdomen, and they leave that stinger. Um, if they if they insert that stinger under your skin, they'll leave it there, and soon after they can't they can't live without mm. that. Um, so, 
aside from the potential of stinging someone or becoming susceptible to a disease or getting separated from their colony, um, how long could a bee live or a honeybee live without that? There, there, are th there are three kinds of bees that live in a colony. There's the queen. There's usually just one queen uh, in the in the colony. She lays all of the eggs. She's responsible for the for the long-term life of the colony because she she keeps producing young bees. Um, they're the worker bees, and uh, all of them are female. They they do not generally do not lay eggs um, because they're unfertilized, but they do all the work. They do all of the um, foraging. They they keep the hive clean. The hive is very sanitary. Uh, they they do everything within the hive, and they do. There are lots of different jobs within the hive. Eventually they become foraging bees and they will leave the hive and go look for nectar or pollen or, or whatever needs to be brought back to the hive and and they will die in that process. Um, the life of a worker bee uh, can be as in, in the summer when they're very active can be as short as six weeks. Uh, the life of a queen um, is usually two years maybe some Queens can live up to five years, but they don't, they're not very productive if they do that uh, because they've lost most of their eggs. The third type of bee in the hive is called the drone. That's the male bee. Their sole purpose is to fly outside the hive uh, on set occasions and mate with queens in what they call a, a drone or a queen lane or a drone lane. And uh, bees mate in the air. And uh, so the drones do that. At the end of the season, which is from now to fall, the drones eventually get kicked out of the hive and they die. The girls I tell the story to just love it, you know. Is it, uh, is it just to allocate resources better in the hive? Pretty or? much. Wow, uh, bees are so... Yeah. Um, organized, a little communist, but really well, organized. They're, uh, they're <laughs> extremely organized, and um, and what is and and you look at, I mean, that's one of the things that makes beekeeping so much fun. It's fascinating to to see all this occur. But the bees have an extremely sophisticated communication system. Uh, if a if a what they call a scout bee goes out of the hive, a scout bee will go out of the hive, look for sources of nectar, which will mean certain flowers. Okay, find those, come back to the hive, and tell the other bees. Now they do it not through voice, but they do it through uh, what they call a, the 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 dance of the bees, but the way they maneuver around in the hive. They will tell the other bees exactly where that source of nectar is uh, in terms of direction and distance. And how far will these bees go to find nectar or food, water, those yeah. kinds of things? Bees will can travel up to about five miles away from the hive. Oh, wow. Now, in a single day. Yeah, they usually don't. Uh, yeah, now bees don't forage at night, so they have to be back in the hive at night. So, um, 
bees will try to find the closest source of nectar, closest source of water, and the closest source of pollen that they can. And if they're not back in the hive at night, do they just die, or can they just not fly? Uh, then, no, they get back. I mean, that's, that's what you do if you're a bee. You uh, so it's not like the bee kind of wanders around and, you know, looks at its watch and says, oh, my God, it's nearly bedtime. They, you know, they, un they understand <laughs> where, what they're doing a little bit better than that. This, so this system of communication they have um, is just truly fantastic, and we don't really understand it all yet. Uh, we've, we know that it happens. We know the basics of what they do and how it happens. Uh, but there's still a lot of mystery to it, too. So um, so bees are really fascinating little creatures, and uh, and they're important, and we need to pay attention. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about this issue is that people that normally wouldn't think that they have a stake in something like this through the power of social media, through the power of just people raising awareness about pollinators have suddenly found, like, a reason to have a stake in, in honeybee population. and. <sighs> Yeah. Um, we, I mean, we had respondents talking about bees saying that the, the idea of our pollinators disappearing was literally keeping them up at night. Right, right. We, we all do have a stake in this, uh, and it's a, it's a complex problem. It's not one that lends itself to any single solution. Uh, we Americans like solutions. We <laughs> tell us what to do, and we'll do it. And uh, it's not, I don't think it's that simple. Uh, we're going to have to... We're going to have to keep working at it, um, do some little things, do some big things, uh, see if we can adjust uh, to keep the good things that we have, about, particularly about our food system, but also to, to make it more sustainable. So short of, um, I mean, I think with homeowners associations and things like that, people aren't probably going to be able to stop mowing their grass. But short of that and um, some of the other things you'd mentioned with certain types of flowers, what can people do um, in just their individual lives to, mm -hmm. to kind of help out with this? Well, planting flowers is a big thing because mm -hmm. bees need sources of food. And flowers that bloom for the entire blooming season, too, which would be, you know, in, around here it would be March to, to October, um, you know, to make sure that, that for as much time of the year bees can have a source of food where they can make honey. The reason bees make honey is that that's what they eat, uh, and particularly over the winter where there, when there is no blooming season, that's what they eat. And so as a beekeeper, you always want to keep enough honey in the hive so that bees will, your colony will survive over the winter. That's a tricky thing too. Um, but, uh, but that's the thing. I mean, uh, you know, if there's one thing sort of all of us could do is, you know, just plant more things that are friendly to bees. Mm -hmm. And what about water? Do they just get water from natural sources, or are there bee hydrator feeders? Well, uh, first of all, bees can't swim, <laughs> uh, but they do need to get at water. That's why people have swimming pools, because they are little pools of water around the pool, you know, they will often see honeybees there. But wouldn't the chlorine hurt a bee? Not necessarily. Hmm. No. Um, and so, you know, while you don't want your children to run around the pool and get stung, you know, pay attention to the bees that may be there. And if they're there, 
my my admonition would be leave them alone, you know, because they're they need that water basically, mm-hmm. and uh, or 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 try to create a shallow pool of water. That's what we do at our house. We we try to we try to create some shallow pools where the bees will go and have access because they can't get in the water, but they can get to the edge of the water and do that. And that's that's real important for this time of year because it's so hot. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Well, uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that people are concerned about Well, uh, I, I hope that, you know, little by little we can we can increase that concern. There's not going to be a single solution. There's not going to be a day that we wake up and say, oh, the problem is solved. Uh, it's going to take some continued efforts from all of us uh, to to try to make our environment better for bees. And I think as, as long as we have that awareness, uh, we'll be able to do something. I hope you enjoyed your bedtime story. Be sure to tune in to 10 Talks next week for Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, where we'll talk about the changing landscape of childbirth in Knoxville. And remember, you can always find out more information about the 10 Words Project on our website, wuot.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at 10 Words with two N's, where we'll publish some of your anonymous responses to our current question every day. We also keep a running archive on Instagram. Again, that's at 10 words. And there you can see all of our responses, the funny ones, the serious ones, the thought-provoking ones, all of them. And thanks a bunch to Tom Reddick and Jim Stovall for joining us on the show this evening. And a big thanks to everyone on the 10 words team and all the good folks over at the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. The music for Bedtime Stories is by Todd Steed and the Sons of Fear. That's P-H-E-R-E. If you like it, you can hear a whole lot more of it on Bandcamp. Sleep tight, Knoxville.